Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. You are very welcome. This is one of a, a series of talks in the philosophy and series. It's going to be a bit challenging. Are you up for a challenge? Philosophy in the play of life. The truth of the matter is, in the worldly setup, people go to work to earn wages. And they earn wages to buy goods and services. And they want these for the pleasure that they bring. But wages, goods, and derived pleasures do not bring about the peace of the self. And sooner or later, the inquiry turns to philosophy. And so here we are. We're told that the worldly life of money, possessions, and pleasure doesn't bring happiness. So we start to question. And philosophy being the love of wisdom, we inquire after the truth. And when we do inquire, the wise tell us that this life is a play. It's a drama. In truth, it isn't real, although it's taken to be real. And it has no transformative effect. In truth, they tell us, you aren't 40-year-old, 5'10", 9.5 stone, Longford man. You're not subject to birth or death, or pleasure or pain, or gain or loss. In truth, you are the self, pure, perfect, and complete. Your nature is bliss and love, and you are limitless, eternal, and free. That's what they tell us. Well, whether it's true or not, it's certainly not a common experience. Would that be fair? Our experience is very different. Our experience is this life is real. It's very real. Work is real. And work is generally unpleasant. Holidays are real, and they are generally pleasant. They're so pleasant, we book them in October to get us through a cold winter and a wet spring. Anticipation of holidays, that's pleasant and it's real. Funerals are real, that's what we think. Parties are real. Gray hairs are real. Wrinkles, pensions, houses, neighbors, good neighbors, noisy neighbors, philosophy talks. We think it's all real. We think pleasure is real. And we think pain is real. Shakespeare said there wasn't a philosopher yet who didn't lose his patience with a toothache. And we're told that we are our body. And we want it to be clean and shiny, so we use Pantene XR4I protein organic shampoo, because clean and shiny people use that. And we have an image to maintain. Image is everything. So we drink Coca-Cola, because cool people drink Coca-Cola. Or Red Bull. Really trendy people drink Red Bull, even though we hate the taste. We drink Red Bull. And it's not just our own image. It's our house. It's our garden. It's our Christmas tree. Our Christmas tree should be decorated with just white lights this year. Multicolored fairy lights are so 90s. In fact, they're probably 80s. In fact, they mightn't even have made it out of the 70s, and we've been showing ourselves up all these years. I was in a shop in Belfast called Fulton's, 
at Christmas and the lady ahead of me in the queue spent £310 on purple Christmas decorations. Purple lights, purple tinsel, purple baubles. So maybe purple is it for next year. We're told we are what we eat, so we eat Special K. Because slim, healthy people eat Special K. And we are what we wear. So it's pastels for the summer and solid colours for the autumn. It's all very real. And there are good times and bad times. And we have a way of getting through the good times. And we have a way of getting through the bad times. Sometimes we can assume an antic disposition. Laugh it off. Pretend it's not real. Enjoy it while it lasts. Or we can be pessimistic. And this is a life of mourning and weeping in the valley of tears. Or we can be fatalistic and indifferent and say, sure, what of it? The glass is half empty, it's half full. What does it matter? But nonetheless, it's all real. The pessimism, the optimism, and the indifference, it's all real. Going to the cinema or the theatre, that's real. The play isn't real, of course, or the film. But the four kids, three rows in front with 27 packets of crisps between them, it's very real. And the couple behind us with the mobile phone going off all the time is very real. Can they not read the signs? It's not funny. The cinema goer is very real. The mother is real, the father, the car owner, the stolen car owner, the crime victim. The poor, misunderstood, undervalued, unappreciated, underpaid martyr is real. Poor me, I'm real. That's what I think. Or even worse, we win the lotto. And we think the, lotto, the lottery winner is real. Well, that being the common view, there's a consequence for holding that view. There's a fruit of the common view. When we take life to be real, we think that we're not truly happy. We think that we have to acquire something, or achieve something, or attain something, in order to become happy. If to get somewhere, make something of myself, be somebody. We end up thinking pleasure and pain are real, so we live a life of preference and aversion. I prefer window seats. Or I prefer aisle seats, so it's handier to get to the toilet. Or I prefer first class. Or I prefer trains, don't like flying at all. We think comfort and discomfort are real. So we go for comfort and we try to avoid discomfort. We want a comfortable seat, a comfortable lifestyle. And we see injustice in the world. And that can make us want to cheat. We take down an old jacket and we find 10 euro in the pocket and we say, great. Or we find 10 euro on the road, even better. What do we do? We, of course, we keep it. I'm not going to put it on the railings like somebody's hubcap. Somebody might take it and it wouldn't be theirs. Or we get 10 euro extra in change from a bank and they made 420 million profit in the last quarter and most of it from my overdraft and mortgage. So I keep the 10 euro. But cheating doesn't really make us happy. 
It also follows that we think disharmony is real and harmony. And we fight. We fight for our corner, for our team, my team, my rights, my needs, my life, my armrest. You get on an airplane and there's somebody sitting in the seat beside you and they have their arm on the armrest. And you try to get yours on and they're taking up the whole armrest. So you wait for ages until they go to the loo and then you get your elbow in. <laughs> and you keep it there for the rest of the journey because it's yours. You pay for it. And when we take life to be real, we think gain and loss are real. And so we try to acquire things. And we store them up and hold on to them. We become acquisitive and greedy. We take more than we need. We go to a restaurant and it's a set menu. And we really don't want the sorbet or the soup, but we paid for it, so we eat it. And when we get things, we fear losing them, and we become fearful and insecure. My wallet, my pension, my girlfriend, my job, my tan, it may be a fake tan, but it's my tan, my hair, my reputation, these are the things that make me what I am. So I have something to lose, and that can make us limit our participation. Psychologists call this the platform of participation, where you don't risk everything. You don't put all your eggs in the one basket. If I loved my wife too much, what would I do if she left me? And we aim for the pleasant, and we avoid the unpleasant. The holidays, the anticipation, sunshine, the pina coladas on the beach, watching the sunset on the balcony. If the actual experience doesn't turn out like that, there's trouble, because we've demanded that holiday. And we end up in some half-finished apartment block four miles from the sea, with nylon sheets and ants in the kitchen. And it's not funny. It's not funny at all. And we see things as good and bad. And if good things keep happening for a while, excellent. Finally, things are going my way, and so they should. And if bad things keep happening for a while, I want out. We envy children. They don't care. Or we want to get drunk. Things don't seem to be as serious then. It's a way out, isn't it? But we think our happiness lies in the play going my way. I want green traffic lights, not red ones. And I want black bank accounts, not red ones. Good-looking girlfriends, attentive friends, appreciative children, the right presents for Christmas, good service in restaurants, no traffic jams. And we think our happiness lies in getting something out of the play. And therefore, we try and take it from the play. And this usually proves itself to be very, very exhausting. Even if we do get a little pleasure, it's short-lived. Go to a football match, and my team wins, and it's great. But then what about the next round? Or we go to a film, The Lord of the Rings, brilliant. When is the sequel out? I can't wait. And then when is part three out? And why isn't there a part four? The things of the world do not deliver happiness. 
but we keep getting fooled. I wanted a Batman car that fired red darts. I thought that if I got that, I'd be happy. That'd be it. And I got it, and I wanted an action man. I thought I'd be happy if I got an action man. I thought I'd be happy if I had 10 pounds credit in my post office account. Then I wanted 100 pounds, another digit. Social commentators call this the dog chasing the car syndrome. But you look around and you see something and you want it and you chase after it and you get it and then you don't know what to do next. You want something else so you chase another one and you get it and then you don't know what to do, you chase something else. We want to be in secondary school. As soon as we're in secondary school, we want to be in sixth year. All the big guys are in sixth year. They want to go to college. We get to college, we just want to get our finals, get your exams. I can just get my exams. But then we want a job. Any job. And we get a job. Then we want a good job. So we get a good job. Then we want a pay rise. We've earned it. So we get a pay rise. Then we want to be appreciated, because money isn't everything, you know. We want to get a mortgage. More than anything else, we want to get a mortgage for the house of my dreams. We get the house of our dreams, and we want a conservatory or a bigger house. I just want to pay the mortgage off. If I can just get the mortgage paid off, I'll be happy then. And the mortgage is paid off. If I can just retire early, how happy will I be? And then I retire. What do I do then? It starts to get a bit shaky. So I look around. I see the grandchildren. Yes. I'll set them up. Set them up for life. What a life. Time and time again, I believe I can get satisfaction from the world. And while it consistently fails to deliver, I'm fooled time and time again. And I pass all of this on to my children, my grandchildren. Get their exams, get a job, start a pension, try and get a house, make something of themselves. And this is all based on thinking that we lack something and that we have to acquire or achieve something in order to be happy. However, with the opposite view, we lack nothing. And this is the truth of the matter. This is the view of the wise. The wise tell us that this common view is a mistake. They tell us that it's wrong, that it's untrue. They tell us that things are not, in fact, what they appear. And the wise and the poets and painters and composers, they've all tried to tell us this in every way possible, and we keep missing it. And even if we get it, we forget. They challenge our ordinary view, and Shakespeare was very good at this. Do you want to hear what Shakespeare said? But there's a few words in this that I had to look up. One of them is bearded like the pard, which is like the leopard, like a patchy beard. A capon is kind of a, a, a game bird. Holes in this context is trousers, and at the end he uses the French word sans, S-A-N-S, which means without. And as I read this out, you can have a look at the, the picture and see if it makes any more sense. He said, all the world's a stage, and all the men and women merely players. They have their exits and their entrances, and one man in his time plays many parts his acts being seven ages. At first the infant, kneeling and puking in the nurse's arms, and then the whining schoolboy, 
with his satchel and shining morning face, creeping like snail unwillingly to school. And then the lover, sighing like a furnace, with a woeful ballad made to his mistress's eyebrow. And then a soldier, full of strange oaths, and bearded like the pard, jealous in honor, sudden and quick in quarrel, seeking the bubble reputation even in the cannon's mouth. And then the justice, in fair round belly with good cape and lined, with eyes severe and beard of formal cut, full of wise saws and modern instances. And so he plays his part. The sixth age shifts into the lean and slippered pantaloon, with spectacles on nose and pouch on side, his youthful hose well saved, a world too wide for his shrunk shank and his big manly voice, turning again towards childish treble, pipes and whistles in his sound. The last scene of all that ends this strange eventful history is second childishness and mere oblivion. Son teeth, son eyes, son taste, son everything. Strong stuff, isn't it? Well, if that wasn't fair warning, he said it again in stronger terms. Able for another one? He said, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day. And all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle. Life's just a passing shadow. A poor player that struts and frets his owl upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale full of sound and fury, told by an idiot, signifying nothing. And we still think if we just get the house painted this summer. Well, I'll, I'll read one more from Shakespeare. What he often did was he put a play within a play. Just in case we were missing the point, he gave us two plays. And this is from the, the Tempest, stay going on and Prospero stops the play. He goes off and does something and this is what he says about the play he's just interrupted. He says, our revels now are ended. These are actors, as I foretold you, are spirits, and have melted into air, into thin air. And like the baseless fabric of this vision, the cloud-capped towers, the gorgeous palaces, the solemn temples, the great globe itself, yea, all which it inherit shall dissolve, and leave not a rack behind. We are such stuff as dreams are made on, and our little life is rounded with the sea. The poets have tried to warn us as well of what it would mean to take this too seriously. They tell us that in fact it won't amount to anything. Ashes to ashes, remember man that thou art dust, food for worms. And if we have a friend who loses something, we try and console them, we say, ah oh, sure. Don't worry about it. You can't take it with you. There's no pockets in the shroud. There's no towbar on the hearse. But we don't really believe it. Not really. James Shirley wrote a poem called Death the Leveller. Would you be for one verse of that? Yeah? He said, The glories of our blood and state are shadows, not substantial things. There is no armor against fate. Death lays his icy hand on kings. 
Scepter and crown must tumble down, and in the dust be equal made with the poor crooked scythe and spade. Now, General Patton, did anybody see the film Patton or read the book? Yeah? Well, General Patton was the commander of the Third Army in Europe in the Second World War. And he's held to be one of the greatest generals that ever lived. And he moved his army further and faster than anybody had before. He had half of Europe under his protection at one stage. And he's credited with bringing the Second World War to a much quicker end than it otherwise would have. That's some CV, isn't it? Talk about glory. And he did talk about glory. This is what he said about glory. He said, for over a thousand years, Roman conquerors returning from the wars enjoyed the honor of a triumph, a tumultuous parade. In the procession came trumpeters and musicians and strange animals from the conquered territories, together with carts laden with treasure and captured armaments. The conqueror rode in a triumphal chariot, the dazed prisoners walking in chains before him. Sometimes his children, robed in white, stood with him in the chariot or rode the trace horses. A slave stood behind the conqueror, holding a golden crown and whispering in his ear a warning that all glory is fleeting. And we still think, if I just get this week over, or sort this problem out, I'll be happy then. I think General Patton knew that this was a play, and he played his part fully. And he had a part to play. But if we hear that after the war, he was given a desk job in a back office, and he was killed in a car accident, and if we think there's no justice when we hear that, well, we're still missing the point. We haven't heard him. Jesus said there was a rich man who had much money. He said, I will use my money to sow and reap and plant and fill my storehouse with produce so that I shall lack nothing. This is what he thought in his heart, and that night he died. Whoever has ears, let him hear. And still we want that conservatory. We'll be happy then, we'll be in heaven. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away. Where does that leave us? The poets also encourage us to look deeper. Yeats said at the end, cast a cold eye on life, on death, horseman, pass by. They're trying to tell us something, but often we just don't hear them, in one ear and out the other. Even when they tell us the price of our mistake, Patrick Kavanagh said, when the angel woos the clay, he'll lose his wings at the dawn of day. But also they tell us straight, they give it to us right between the eyes. Christ said, take no thought for your life, what ye shall eat, or what ye shall drink, nor yet for your body, what ye shall put on. And we say, well, fair enough, but there's more to me than that. I have my principles, my dignity, my reputation, I have my education. I've worked hard for my education to better myself. I've gone to philosophy classes. But then he says, why take ye thought for raiment? Which of you, by taking thought, can add one cubit to his stature? And this is a very central point. There's nothing real about a refined or cultured mind who can quote this and that. We don't want a clever philosopher 
who believes he's one of the privileged few who knows that this is a play. This is just the ego. One man described this as the thief turning policeman to catch the thief that is himself. Christ said, I am the light of the world. He also said, you are the light of the world. Imagine that. Well, if that's the view of the wise, what's the fruit of the view of the wise, practically speaking? Well, the wise know that this is a play, and they experience happiness and equanimity, lightness of being, freedom, limitlessness, regardless of any outcome. They enjoy playing, win or lose. They don't play to win, they just enjoy playing. When we play, we play to win. We don't enjoy playing. When we do that, we impose a demand, and we limit our happiness to a particular outcome. Our happiness is dependent. Martina Navratilova said once in an interview, it was her fourth or fifth Wimbledon final, and nobody had won that many before. And she was serving, it was match point, and she was 40 love up, and she double faulted. And she served again, and she double faulted. And she said she realized then that she wasn't playing tennis, which she loved to do. She was trying to win Wimbledon. So she stopped trying to win Wimbledon. She just played. And she said she enjoyed playing, and as it happened, she won. But who enjoys more, the sportsman or the winner? Who plays better? The sportsman who wants to play or the winner who wants to win? Well, the wise play their part fully, physical, mental, and emotional participation, using body, mind, and heart, no limiting. And they're not affected by any of the roles that they're in or by whatever happens in the play. So if an actor is playing Hamlet, and his father has been murdered, and his mother's sleeping with his uncle, and his girlfriend's committed suicide, and his friends are betraying him, and he's talking to a ghost, he's unaffected. He knows it's just a play. Or if it's James Bond, and you get the girl, and the fast car, and you save the world, it's just a play. Happiness in the play is knowing that you are the witness and not affected by any of the roles, no matter what. The wise don't demand. They don't push for results. They don't stress. Saint Ignatius said, Teach us, Lord, to labor and to look for no reward. Isn't that strange? The wise accept things as they are, and everything that they do is beautiful and efficient. They don't leave any ripples in their wake. And if they build a sandcastle and it falls, they build another one, or do something else. Or if it's a family, or an enterprise, or an organization. We get up in the morning, and we seek happiness in the world. We plan our day around how we might get a little bit extra happiness. This is hard work. We can lose our friends and be exhausted and go to bed unsuccessful. 
not having experienced happiness at all, but resolved to try even harder the next day. The wise already are happy, and they express this happiness in the play. Whatever role is called for. Like a child who just gets up and expresses his happiness in the day. Whether it's washing up or jumping in puddles. But if it is a play, what is a play then? What makes it a play? What's the purpose of the play? Well, we know what a play is. A play is a game or a drama, like a dream. It's not real. We know it's not real. Dallas isn't real. Is Dallas real? Is Coronation Street real? Is Ali McBeal real? Is Mickey Mouse real? Monopoly isn't real. So we set up the board, and we choose our piece, and we follow the rules, and we move around the board, put up a few houses or a few hotels, go bankrupt, go to jail a couple of times, and then put it all back in the box, having enjoyed the game. Cinderella isn't real. The Ugly Sisters aren't real. There was an actor in the um, Dublin Theatre Festival a few years ago, and he won the Best Actor Award, and he played Richard III. Now, Richard III was not the um, most handsome king that England ever had. He had a, a hump and he had a limp. And in the interview, this actor was asked what it was like, and he said, it was brilliant. He said, how often do you get the chance to have a hump and a limp in the same play? He said, it was brilliant. Well, a play isn't eternal. It's not real. It's not independent. It's not unchanging. It's not true. It's transient, and it's for the enjoyment of all. But how do we know when something is a play? Well, for example, with a dream, when we wake up from a dream, then we know the dream to have been a dream. So we should see this life as a play by waking up, as it were, to the truth. Is Big Brother real? Is Disneyland real? I was in Disneyland once, and we got it all wrong. There's a way to do Disneyland. In fact, there are books about how to do Disneyland. If you get the timing right, you can get through everything without having to queue very much. We got it all wrong. We missed nearly everything. So we, we were sitting down at a, on a bridge, and we, there was a family beside us. We heard their conversation, and they had done the Pirates at 11 or something, and Space Mountain at half past 11, and this was the Mickey Mouse photo shoot at 12 o'clock. And they were going to the parade at 12.30 and so on. And Mickey Mouse didn't turn up. He didn't show, and the whole day was ruined. In fact, the whole holiday was ruined. My court case isn't real. My speeding ticket. But how can we know when it's a play? Sometimes, when we pause, or meditate, or connect with our senses, or even catch someone's eye, we can connect with something that can remind us that it's a play, that there's some unity behind all of this apparent diversity. I remember once I got a job with a company car, and one of the rules was you weren't allowed to give hitchhikers a lift. And I used to hitch a little bit when we were camping and so on. 
Now, I remember one wet, dark winter's evening, and I drove along some country road, and there was some lady trying to hitch a lift. And as I passed her, I wouldn't look at her. Do you know why? Because I knew if I looked at her, I would have to stop and give her a lift. Sometimes, when things get ridiculous, like when it's raining and you have to go home from work, you're trying to dodge in between the shops and not get wet, and it's hard work, and it's not funny. And but after a while, you just get so wet, you don't care anymore. So you just walk home, and you enjoy the rain, and you enjoy the walk, and you enjoy the bath. Or if you're playing a match and you're losing, and it's not funny, and you're trying not to lose, and you're just losing by so much, you just give up. And then you just play. But when we stop demanding, and when we see things as they are, without good or bad, then we experience unity. And how do we make the mistake then? How do we forget? A priest told me once he was involved in a school nativity play. and It was a very young class, and this was their first play. And all the children had their roles, and they practiced and rehearsed and got their costumes ready. And one particular chap was the innkeeper who said there was no room at the inn. And it was a one-night play. But as it approached the performance night, this chap started to see what the play was all about. So when Jesus and Mary came along and knocked and said, have you any room? He looked at all the audience and he said, come on in, there's loads of room. <laughs> he didn't want to be the one who said, I've no room. He just forgot it was a play. I was uh, on holidays in Spain, I think, and one of my sons asked me to build a sandcastle. So we started to build a sandcastle and didn't start out as much, but you build the four towers and then you start to build the walls in between and a bit of a moat. And it started to look good and take a bit of shape. So I was getting the sand compacted really, really hard so the, all the edges would be straight on the little towers. And, and he, he didn't want to play anymore. He wanted me to go and play football or something, but I wanted to finish the sandcastle. It ended up, he tried to knock the sandcastle down. I had to get my wife to hold him back so I could finish the sandcastle. I forgot. I just forgot. For whatever reason, and there are a few, we forget. We just stop remembering the truth. And we take something ridiculous and small to be real. Larry, uh, Larry Hagman or Hangman? Hagman? He said once he was forever being assaulted by people for being so cruel and mean and horrible to Sue Ellen. He said once some woman came up to him and said, how could you do that to her? Poor woman. And he, she gave him a string of abuse and he just forgot. And he said, look, you've no idea what that woman is like. She spends my money. She's ungrateful. She... And then he remembered. He remembered the truth. But how do we do what the wise say and see it as a play? Well, faith is one way. We can accept their word. We can trust them. Christ said, you are the light of the world. But we don't really believe that. One man in India, Nizar Gadatta, who was held to be a wise man, was asked, well, how did he do it? And he said his teacher told him he was limitless and free. And he said, I just believed him. 
Now, we don't really trust anyone but ourselves. And we are our own conscience. If you're playing golf and you, you declare your own errors and somebody else marks the score down, if we say that was a four and it was really a seven, and nobody else knows, but we always know, don't we? Always. We can't fool ourselves. So faith can work. There was a man called Ashtawakra, which in Sanskrit means the eight afflictions. And if you think Richard III was bad, this guy, he had a withered arm and a lame leg and a blind eye, and he had eight things wrong with him. He was held to be a wise man. He said, Verily by nature thou art consciousness absolute. Do not harbor narrowness of heart and think thyself to be otherwise. Well, reason can also work if we want to remember the truth. A man called Ramana Maharshi, who was also held to be a wise man, he, if ever he was asked a question, he would always turn it around and say, who's asking? And he said, if you kept asking, who was asking the question? Or whatever thought or feeling arose, ask the question, who is this presented to? And genuinely inquired that you would come to realize the truth. But that can be tough too. But we can combine reason and experience. And so we should. We should learn from our mistakes. And we do know that the world doesn't deliver happiness. Time after time we're fooled. If my boss is nasty, I need to change my job. If only my husband was sweeter. If only there was less crime. Will there ever be peace in the north? Reason and experience will tell us that whatever it is we think will make us happy, if we get it, there'll be something else. So there has to be another way. Or there's practice. Shakespeare said, assume a virtue if you have it not. And the wise and the saints were full of encouragement to do this. Practice equanimity, acceptance, forgiveness, gratitude, compassion. And in all of this, we shouldn't play to win. In fact, we shouldn't even play to enjoy. We should just enjoy to play. We shouldn't seek happiness in the play, but rather express our own happiness in the play, in whatever role is being played. We shouldn't work in a job that we think will make us happy, but our, express our happiness in our job. We shouldn't marry in order to be happy, but express our happiness in our marriage. The wise often use stories and analogies to uh, help us, and very many of them involve food or a feast. There's one famous one about the bamboo jackets, where a great feast is laid on, and all the groups of people in the world are invited in, the poor and the wealthy and the farmers, the educated. One at a time, they're all brought in. And as they come in, they have to put on these bamboo jackets, which are fine, except you can't bend the arms. So they're presented with this feast and they make a dog's dinner of it. So they're all ushered out, the feast is reset, and the next group is invited in, and the same happens. And finally, the wise come in and they put on the bamboo jackets and they feed each other. And then everybody knows how, and then everybody is satisfied. Well, the feast in the analogy is the creation. The jackets are the rules for playing. Feeding each other is the principle or the law. And the outcome is satisfaction for all. 
It's all available and no deprivation is intended. So the outcome then of knowing that life is a play is justice and harmony for all. The world will not deliver happiness. Bliss is our very nature. We are limitless, eternal, independent and free. And there is only one. Of a certainty, the man who sees himself in all creatures and all creatures in himself knows no sorrow. So be yourself, be happy, and express that happiness in the play of your life. And that's the end. So thank you very much. If you want to break for tea and coffee or the wine for maybe 20 minutes or so, and if there are any questions afterwards, we can have a look. All right? Thank you. We're going to record the questions and answers, hoping that there would be some wise men and women in the audience, if that's all right. Now, that it was challenging and provocative and even contentious, but if there are any questions or comments... Yeah. I was wondering um, how can we get to the stage where we realize it's a play all the time. You, you mentioned those wise people who seem to know that it's a play. Do they ever forget, or is it possible to get to a stage where you're conscious of the fact that it is only a play? Very good. Well, what they say is it does take practice, and it doesn't always happen that there's a sudden and immediate parting of the clouds and that everything is fully resolved. It, there can often be a gradual parting of the clouds, and then it can appear to be dark again. What they do say is that with practice, if we try to stay in the present and try to remember or try not to forget, for example, they say, if you can stay in the present just for two minutes without wandering off into a daydream or getting caught up in something, that you're nearly there. Imagine that, two minutes. So apparently it can happen that there can be sudden illumination and that's it. But in general, it's, it does happen that maybe Today, you didn't forget quite as much as yesterday, and tomorrow even less so, and that can, that can keep going. Thank you very much. We are one. We are all the one. Yes. Can you go back to that and explain it? Yes, I said there's only one. Yes. And then there was a quotation which said, Of a certainty, the man who sees himself in all creatures, and all creatures in himself, knows no sorrow. Right. So uh, this would be a very common theme in a lot of what is proposed by the wise and by the saints. They say things like, love thy neighbor as thyself. And the only way to do that is if there aren't two, if there's only one. For example, when I was on my holidays, sometimes we stayed by the pool and sometimes we went across the road to the beach. All right? And one particular day, my five-year-old son wanted to go and his friend wanted to go as well, his five-year-old friend, Owen. So Owen asked his mother, and his mother said, no problem. So all of a sudden now I have two five-year-old boys with me. They held each of their hands as I crossed the road. And do you know what that, what that feeling can be like? Where all of a sudden your sphere of concern, if you like, has expanded. And you've got, it's like you've got a, a bigger family. And it, it seemed at that point that there was no difference between one boy and the other. It wasn't that one was my son. 
We were just one, one family that I'd go into the beach. So there was only one. Funny, but what happened actually, and it goes back to this man's question, it, it was perfect, and I, I wouldn't have chosen one over the other, I wouldn't have neglected one. It seemed as if I couldn't have a preference, they were two perfect boys. But when we got to the beach and I put out the towel and I sat down and I watched them play, my son was sort of playing in the water, and this other guy, Owen, was delighted to be on the beach, and he started splashing around and jumping in the sand and kicking up sand, and he see this big Spanish guy lying beside us, he splashed him with sand. And he just put on all his lotion and, huh? And he looked at me and he gave me the dirtiest look that he could give me. And I tried to tell him, that's not my son, but my, my, my son's in the water. But he, he, didn't, he didn't speak English, so I, I tried to think of some Spanish, and it didn't work either. And I tried a third time, and he just, and he looked away, and I felt like St. Peter, that I had just denied something that was true. So it, it can happen like that, one minute where there's one, and it's perfect, and the next minute, something is mine, and some, does that make sense? Yes. Yeah? Or if anybody has better stories than I had, I'd... <laughs> The example you explain now about something happy going on at the beach and whatever is great. But in terms of the play of life, would you say the key primary way of, of achieving that and living like that is detachment? Or like you mentioned the word witness earlier. Yes. That, that ability to just observe, not get caught up in it. Yes. Now how do you marry that with someone you love near and dear, who's your soulmate, who's, who dies? How do you achieve that level of detachment? That witnessing. Yes. The funny thing about detachment, it's quite possible for an individual to practice being a detached person in order not to be hurt or in order not to get too disappointed. But that detachment wouldn't be real. That's not the detachment that the wise speak about. The detachment would be, if you like, detachment from, from anything that can happen the body, for example or anything that takes place in the mind, or anything that takes place in the heart. If I said you are the light of the world, what light does is it illuminates and it, it reveals, but it's not affected at all by what it illuminates or reveals. As the wise say, they participate fully with body, mind and heart, but it could always be remembered that if it's true here that I am the light of the world, it's also true that the beloved was also the light of the world and didn't die. Certainly the body dies, without a doubt. And, and this is where it starts to get tricky, because if we really put this into practice, all these examples of the actors playing the part of Hamlet, Mel Gibson or Lawrence Olivier doesn't mind at all when Hamlet is killed at the end, because he knows he's not Hamlet. And none of the other actors mind either. And they do it time and time again. So if we really connected with the truth, certainly the person or the beloved, the body would die, the body passes away. It's one of the laws in the creation, everything that is born will, will die. So the detachment should be never to forget that one is beyond anything that happens in the creation. And if this is true about there only being one, it's only an appearance that there were three people, for example, on the beach, a man and two boys. There is only one, there, aren't, there just appears to be three in the play and that there is this common unity that we experience crossing the road. And if there were ten people there, all holding hands, it would have been exactly the same. So that unity can always be connected with.
And you mentioned during your talk about that's not real, that's not real. What is real? Yes. There'll be a few examples that the wise often use to help us with this. For example, this would be one. They'd say, what's that? And we'd say, that's a ring. And the wise say, no, it's not. They say, it's just gold. And we say, no, no, that, that's a ring. They say, no, it's just gold. So what we do is we're taken by the appearance of things. And we think the appearance or the shape or the form or the name is real. And we forget about the substance. So certainly it is a ring, but the ring isn't real in comparison to the gold. The gold is eternal. We can melt this down and make crucifix, we can make a little dagger, we can make a pair of earrings. And the gold doesn't mind at all what form it takes. Because the substance is unaffected by the appearance. And that will be true in the world. We think that there are 52 people sitting here, but there's only really only one substance. There's only one underlying unity. They speak about the waves and the ocean. That if you look at the ocean, there are all these waves rushing up towards the shore. And they mean this as an analogy. So I think I'm a particular wave. And right now I'm sort of at the crest and I have a nice crispy top and I'm moving quite rapidly. But in a while the shore is going to appear and my demise will be imminent. And I see other waves, some of them are bigger and some of them are smaller. And I laugh at the small ones and I'll be in awe of the big ones and I'll try to be a better or a faster wave. And maybe even start a club of medium-sized waves, all that sort of thing. All the while thinking I'm a wave. But the real substance is the water. And there's only one water. And the waves just appear for a while. They appear to have a separate independent existence and then they all merge back into the water again. And the water is totally untouched by anything that has happened as the waves. And they tell us that it's exactly the same for us. We're just fooled by appearances and we miss the substance. So is the substance the truth within each of us? Is that what's real? The truth within each of us. For example, in Christ's words, he said, you are the light of the world. So that's the only thing that's real? That's the only thing that's real. In the case of the gold and the ring, in a way, there's nothing you can do with the gold. You can hit it with a hammer, but it's still gold. You can melt it down and it's still gold. You can hide it and it's still gold. And the shape at all doesn't make any difference. So these bodies are just appearances. But we just become attached to them. And we claim them as being mine and special and separate. For example, the, you know you go to the beach and you take out your territory and you mark it and maybe you put some of your bags just a little bit away from your towel just to get a little bit of extra space but not too far because then people will start to walk in between so and you, and you claim this little bit of space as your own and certainly you get that little bit of space but then you lose the whole beach and that's what we do we claim this little piece here for our own as soon as you do that you lose the unity you lose the the universal what is real is that that does not change, that That's never right. changes. Yes. And the only thing really in this play or this life that doesn't change is that part that you were talking about inside yes. everything else disintegrates or changes or whatever. That's right. And that's, that was my logic and that's how I understood it anyway. So. Yes. All the bodies here today, this is how they look today. Ten years ago they were different. We had different hair, different clothes, different friends, different tastes. Ten years before that, even younger still, but and in ten years' time, they'll be totally different. And everything may appear to be totally different, but something stays the same right the way through. 
And we usually don't connect with it. That's the idea of the picture, that all these d different boots and Shakespeare's proposition of the seven ages. He's just trying to make the point that don't be fooled by all these changes. There's something constant behind it all. It doesn't change. It's absolutely right. Very good. To be individuals and no two people in the world have the same, what do you call it, print marks. Yes. It's just, can you explain that? Yeah, that's absolutely fine. No two fingerprints are the same. That's fine. Perhaps no two bodies would be identical. There would be some little difference. I don't know, the length of the fingernails, the number of hairs. But that's just the beauty of diversity. But it doesn't discount the unity behind all of this diversity. What can happen to us is we become particularly attached to some of these little unique features and we call them to be the things that make us unique and independent and different. What the wise say is that that's totally the wrong track to go down. What you do get is you do get that separate, unique, independent body, but it's limited and it's separate and you lose everything else. I just want to know, is acceptance the real key to this? That if you picture that a river is constantly moving, but if I was standing in the river fishing, I would be still. And is that the key to this, that the world is a stage or is a play, is actually truly accepting that? Certainly it's one of the things that the wise say, if you don't accept things as they are, you're in trouble. That you'll never be happy unless you accept things as they are. So be it your wife or your job or your car or that if you deny that things are the way they are, because that's the way they are, they can't be any other way right now. It means you miss out on the present moment, totally, uh, wishing it was different. So you're somewhere in, in the future or in the past. And they always tell us that the only time you can be happy or contented is in the present, the present moment. The, the reason why I ask that is because I've often heard people saying that their life takes the same pattern over and over again. And is it because they fail to accept changes that need to be made or they're missing something bigger? Mostly that's caused by habit, and some habits are fairly deeply rooted. There was one particular chap, he was in school with me, he went to college, and he always left it to the last minute to study. And he always had to repeat his exams, every single year. And he always said, never again. It was just a habit. Now, on any given repeat of exams, certainly the thing to do is accept, right now this is the way things are. It doesn't mean you have to do it again. We don't have to be governed by habit. But when we're asleep, if you like, or in a dream, that's generally what governs us, is habit. So you go shopping and you pick the same things every time, whatever you used to, or you go into the same coffee shop, buy the same chocolate bar almost every time. It's very often habit. And it, there's a certain safety and comfort in habit in, the, in that it's familiar, but it's very limiting, and there's no freedom in it. Imagine what it's like to operate out of habit. Sometimes, despite ourselves, we can just respond to something spontaneously. You know, catching something that's going to fall or saying something. You know, and they're usually the funniest things, are the spontaneous jokes. The ones that we practice time and time again generally aren't very good. So the acceptance is very important, but it would be acceptance of things the way they are right now, but with the freedom to do whatever is needed, the freedom to respond. For example, lots of people say, oh, isn't it terrible what's happening in Ethiopia or somewhere? And in a way, that is acceptance, but we go back to the same old things again. There'd be very few people who'd really do anything sincere about it.
We could be in the same job for 30 years. And it, it, the right thing to do wouldn't be just to accept that I have to do this job and I can't do anything else. You used the example in your talk of, you know, somebody finding like a tenor on the street and you, you know, without thinking, put it in your pocket. Yeah. And, you know, if you get the wrong change, there's a bigger, you know, decision to be made there yeah. whether you take it or whether you hand it back. If you follow the, the word is a play, yes. you know, d doesn't it take away, you know, your conscience becomes unreal as well? And does it remove your conscience, you know, does the reason for whatever the reason is for, for doing what you consider to be the right thing, is that no longer valid? Well, what the wise would say is if you do try to do the right thing, then you're not working from desire. So if you find, you know, some money and you pose the question, what is the right thing to do here? And you do that. Well, every time you do that, you are free effectively. You're free to do whatever is needed. Whereas if, if you're working on preference, what you like to do, then you're bound to keep it. So on that level, if you go with your conscience every time, instead of desire or preference, then that is the path to freedom. Does that, does that answer the... Well, I'm thinking then, you know, not sure where your conscience comes from, right? Or this idea of what's right and what's wrong. Yeah. Is that an illusion, you know? Is this idea of to do the right thing... Is that just an illusion that's part of the of the play, or is it more, uh, I suppose, profound or, or more real than than the play itself? Yes, there is this idea of good and evil and so on, and you, you get it in lots of places in, in the Garden of Eden in the Book of Genesis. One thing Adam and Eve were told not to eat was fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Once they had bitten that, you know, they thought to be naked was bad, clothed good. And all of a sudden, have a conservatory good, no conservatory bad. You know, have a bigger Christmas tree than that, you're good. That's the way it works. Shakespeare said, he said that nothing was good or bad, but thinking makes it so. Which is kind of a strange thing to say. And if you ask the wise about this, they will say something like, there is such a thing as good action and bad action. So a bad action, if you like, would be where I'm just out for myself which would be selfishness. Good action would be where you do things for other people. So that would be good action, and you kind of get brownie points, or you, you might go off on the missions, you know. But what they say is that pure action is, is for the good of all. That includes everybody, includes everybody else, and includes yourself, which would be beyond good and bad. And the idea would be that your conscience or reason will always help you out there, because you always know when there's a touch of selfishness about it. I remember once I had worked on a project with a, a couple of guys, and I was meant to be supervising, but one of the other guys did nearly all the work. In fact, he really did. So the boss called me in and said, you know, that was great. Well done. Who did that? And I said, Paul. He said, really? Paul did that? And I said, ah, he did, yeah, yeah, he did really. But uh, the way I said it, there was like a, just a little bit of credit pointed. That, that was not, you know, and I knew. I knew that I was trying to you know, play the martyr and pretend to, you know, but you just can't fool. You can't. There are lots of stories there's, of guys going, you know, 30 years later, they're going to own up to a crime, you know, that, that happened 30 years before. They just, they just can't. They never forget. So there is this incredible facility of ours, of reason or intellect, which will reflect the truth. If, if something is true, it will say so. If it's untrue, it will say so. If it doesn't know, it will say, I don't know, I need more information. And based on that, it is possible for your actions to be pure.
which would be for the welfare of all. That wouldn't exclude you. So you have to eat too, you have to go to bed too, you have to get a bit of exercise, a bit of sleep. Is that okay? Yeah, no? that's fine. Thank, Thank you. you. You mentioned not to um, seek happiness through your work, but to express happiness through your work. Supposing despite your best efforts and your happy person, and but you sense that maybe you'd be better at something else, or how would you know? Well, it depends what your talents are. A lot of people are working in jobs that they really don't enjoy, but they're kind of safe and secure, and, you know, the fear of the unknown and changing is just too daunting a prospect. Yet there they are. So what you could do is just, what, what, what do you love, or what's needed, what do people need, and do that. A lot of these parables as well, that they speak about talents, even in that sense, where everybody is given talents, you just have to use them. If you don't use them, then everything is taken back. You have one and you work and you make two, that's fine. And you have two and you make four, that's fine. You have eight and you make twelve, that's all okay. But the guy who buries it in the ground and doesn't use it, he's considered a bit of a waster. So even in the world, it does appear to be whatever talents and qualities we have been given, it appears to be a bit of a crime not to try to use them to the full. So if in expressing your happiness through your work, you still sense that maybe something just... That magic signal will pop out and say, yeah, no, you have to do something else. Yeah, you might have to do something else. But if you're expressing your happiness in your work, then you could say, then that situation shouldn't arise. Absolutely, and, and you could change it. Maybe you change your work from the inside. Maybe you just leave. But then are you not seeking happiness somewhere else? Maybe that there are more people for you to help elsewhere. Or maybe there would be better expression of your creativity. I was in... Canada one time I was driving across the Rockies and every time you came down a mountain there was a little sign up at the local radio station was like tune in to WLR 92.3 or something for as long as you're in the valley that's pretty much all you can get and then you drive out the other side and then you go to the next valley we used to tune into the radio station as, as we drove along and one particular valley we were in just as we tuned in it was a half an hour program on an interview with a local personality I think the day before it was the butcher the day after it was going to be the postman, and today it was the beekeeper, the local beekeeper. And it was a fascinating interview with the local beekeeper. This guy was brilliant, and he knew his subject, and he spoke about honey and bees and how a bumblebee can fly, because no scientist can't understand it. He spoke about pollen and the relationship with allergies. and It was, it was incredible. You, you swear this guy was like seventh-generation beekeeper. And just at the end, the interviewer said, so how long have you been doing this? And the guy said, about two and a half years. And the interviewer said, really? What did you do before that? He said, I was a nuclear missile impact predictor with NASA. <laughs> Honestly. And he said, one day I got up, I just couldn't do it anymore. He said, so I came here and I started beekeeping. So I don't know what possessed him to do that. So it just appeared that he was fully expressing his happiness in, in a total love of the subject and providing a great service and enjoying every minute of it. And yes, he was. But it doesn't mean you have to stay. It doesn't mean you go into a restaurant and you order all the things you don't like. I would not be mad on things like olives, celery, leeks and... I don't know, lamb or something like that. So I, don't, I would not go into a restaurant and deliberately order all the things just so that I can show everybody that I can be happy eating things. Now, there are times when 
you might be given something and you might be in your mother-in-law or something and she might give you exactly the thing that you mightn't like but she's gone to a lot of trouble and it might be the most appropriate thing in the world to eat it and not be disturbed by it all. That can be the case, but I mean, if you look to the Bible where Christ says, you are the light of the world, he says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. But this light should pass through the human being to show good works and glorify Father. That's why it was put there. That's kind of the idea. So it's just a matter of finding the best way to do that in whatever your circumstances are. I mean, in some people it might mean just a part-time job or something like that. It might be that the most they could manage to give full expression to their happiness and creativity. Is that okay? Like, I guess what I'm saying is if you're expressing your happiness where you are now, Yes. Then you would think then that's what you would stay at what you're at. And you might quite happily do that. But if you're staying in what other people might say is a dead-end job and you're stuck in a rut and you just can't, then it might be another matter. It might be selfishness of keeping you there, but just fear of, of doing something bigger. But it, it could be a job or it could be a house. I mean, the house you're in might be absolutely fine. It might be appropriate to move to another one, a bigger one or a smaller one. It might be appropriate to stay where you are. But the idea would be that moving to a bigger house or a smaller house or a comfier house or something like that would not make you happy because it won't. It might be more appropriate or it might free up some funds, it might be closer to something else, but it, in itself it won't make you happy. These things don't, no matter what we do. Like the man who went to California won't make you happy. I mean, there might be more sunshine there. Because the idea is that happiness is already internal. It's a bit like the way you have a pen behind your ear. And you go looking everywhere for it, everywhere, in all the cupboards and even in the fridge, you empty out the hoover and you can't find your pen because you have it all the time. So that would be the idea. So if you have this already, now what do you do with it? There was a man in India called the Shankaracharya and he was asked a, a similar question. He said, so what do you do? And I thought the answer he gave was incredible. He said, it is therefore necessary to use one's intelligence to visualize the true will of the Absolute and act accordingly, transcending all limitations in full consideration of the universe. A good answer, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. So you, you, you know a little bit about this, done a, bit, a little bit of work, read a few books, gone to a few classes, you, you know, you kind of see what, what's going on a little bit, so now what do you do? Well, he said, having got to that stage now with your eyes a little bit open, it is therefore necessary. It's not a maybe or an option, it's necessary. It falls to you to use one's intelligence. So you can't just pull something out of a hat, you know, put in butcher, beekeeper, and a candlestick maker, everything, and see which one you get. Therefore, let's use one's intelligence to visualize the true will of the Absolute, which is or the will of the Lord or the Creator or the Self or whatever way you want to phrase it. Because there may be a much bigger plan for you than the little one I'm stuck in at the moment. To use one's intelligence to visualize the true will of the Absolute and act accordingly. So you don't just realize or discover that you should be a teacher. I know a man who was financial controller of a huge company in Dublin and he left us become a teacher, primary school teacher. I have to take two or three years out to study. And act accordingly. So you can't just think about it, you have to do it. Transcending all limitations. So there'll be a few obstacles in your way, maybe money, 
I don't know, security, lots of little obstacles, so transcending all of those in full consideration of the universe. So looking at the biggest picture. That's what he said. And that would be the best answer I could give on it. It's good, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I'm one of those men that was always um, put up with a list. Yes. So I was thinking just tonight, even though I've done it once or twice, but I haven't done it religiously, is put an exercise in the list, write it down there. Excellent. Well, I was, was wondering, was it a catch in that? Do you know what I mean? Maybe you could see a blow a hole in that theory. No, no, it's, it's uh, excellent. Th these little tricks and tips can be of great value. If you find you can't get up in the morning, you set an alarm clock. I found that I, I became very good at just waking up just enough to turn the alarm clock off and go back to sleep. So you just reach out and you knew where it was positioned, you put it in the same corner in the locker every night. So in order to break that habit, I had to put the alarm clock out of reach of the bed, so I had to actually get out of the bed to turn the alarm clock off. So you do that until you break the habit of lying on in bed. So any of these little things are very good. Now, ultimately, a little reminder in a list can disappear. You don't have to keep doing that forever, but they're of immense value. Right. You can write a little note to yourself, maybe on the inside of your sun visor in the car, so every time you flip it down, it reminds you about something, or put something inside the fridge. So when you open it, it tells you that you are pure, perfect, and complete. <laughs> very good, thanks. You mentioned that you have a four-year-old son, I think. Yes. What guidance would you give to parents of children to introduce them to this area? Very good. I'm actually finding this tough myself because I find myself, if he's exceptionally good, I tell him he's a good boy, and if he's exceptionally naughty, I'm tempted to tell him he's a bad boy or he's a naughty boy. I try not to do that. But it's, it's what he's done is naughty, but it's not that he is a naughty boy. In fact, he's the light of the world. So I tell him that. I tell him he's... He's the light of the world. He's asking some very good questions. Maybe have elderly relatives have died and he's asked questions about what happens. He asks tough ones as well. He asked me the other day, what's at the end of numbers? At four, he asked me that. I remember when I, when I was a precocious child myself, I probably annoyed a lot of people asking a lot of questions and it probably reflected in the way they answered me or told me to uh, go away. So I would try never to do that and always try and answer the question or never discourage him from asking a question. But I would try and speak to him at his level. I wouldn't deliver this to him. As it is here, I would phrase it in words that he could hear and that he could understand. Insofar as I can, but at that age, it's, his life is all about play and he knows it's about play. He teaches me things too. He's this little Lego set where you can build all sorts of little trucks and dumpers and things. He builds one, then he takes it all apart and puts it back in the box. And I build one and I want to keep it because it's really good. But he says, no, Dad, I put it back in the box. We can build another one. It works both ways. I'm happy to be taught by him and reminded. I just try not to tell him that he's limited or that there's anything that, that he can't do. Life is full of opportunity and behind it all there's a truth. I try and tell him of that. How does the view that life is a play square with man as a determining creature who gives meaning to their life through, you know, interaction through their thoughts and behaviours. That man gives meaning to life by his behaviour. Well? And the issue of free choice, you know. Yeah, free will is a very good one, and we think we have free will. 
and we think we were free to come here or not to come here tonight, and we're free to stay, and we're free to go, free to listen, or free to daydream. But if you look a little deeper into how these wise men and women say the creation works, as they say that it is rather mechanical in a lot of respects. For example, if you have practiced daydreaming when people were speaking for the last 20 years, and you come to a talk that you want to listen to, you may not be able to stop yourself daydreaming. Just maybe habit. So we think we may be free, but perhaps we're not. A lot of it is mechanical, governed by habit. There are also laws in, in the creation, such as, as you sow, so shall you reap. So we would never dream that we could plant, for example, when do you plant daffodils? The autumn, is it, or the spring? October. So we would never dream that you could plant daffodils in October and get tulips in the spring. That just can't work. But somehow we think that we can go out on a Saturday night and have you know, six or seven pints and stay up late and still be free to get up early the next morning. But that, that the laws of the creation work in such a way as to lead from one thing to another. So the, apart from habit, there may be a lot of fruits of past actions that manifest. For example, you may mean to go home tonight and to get home in time for, I don't know, the 11 o'clock news or something. If you've been practicing being a fast driver all your life and you drive at 50 miles an hour down the Malone Road and you get a ticket and you're held up and so on, it's not so much that you, any of that was free, but that it was all determined by the way you drive. But in any given moment, we, what we are free in is we can be free to be present or to be absent. So in terms of what's presented to you, it's already happening, as it were, and there's not a lot you can do about it. It's shutting the stable door after the horses, so the horse is gone. But however, being where we are now, there is a, a choice that we can exercise, which is to remember, or to try to remember the self, or to go with the, the mechanical way of living, and to daydream, and let the mind wander, and value things in the world that appear to be important, that don't last. So there is a little bit of freedom, all right, but unless we work at it, there may not be as much as we think. Does that make any sense? Very good. How about the question of predestination versus free will? The question of predestination versus free will. Well, I mean, if you say take this body here, it, you could say that it's predestined to end up at a certain shape and certain size when it's 37, and it's going to be a certain shape and certain size when it's 47 and 57. In a way, it is predestined because the body is growing in a certain way and I have eaten certain foods in the past. So depending on what you feed it, and some people try to go on certain diets and they just can't. They just can't not eat meat or they just can't give up dairy or they just can't. So that will have its effect. But if you take smoking, for example, somebody who's, who's a smoker and who wishes to give up, you could ask the question, are they free to smoke or not? Well, in truth, they are. But in practice, the habit and the attractiveness of smoking and any addiction to it will play its part. And it can be hard to rise above that, but not impossible. So certainly, a daffodil bulb is predestined to turn into a daffodil. It's also predestined to fade out uh, towards the end of the autumn. So that is predestined. In terms of man, it is said that uh, among all creatures, he has the ability to transcend his identification with being man, and he can be what he truly is and that that's a possibility. And that would be far more important than being predestined to be a doctor or a dentist or a, whatever the job happens to be. So you're expressing that you can realize this potential through free will? You can realize this potential 
through your free will. Yes, you can apply free will, but you would have to do it insofar as, for example, you're sitting at a talk and you know you ought to listen, and a little thought comes to the mind, I wonder what the traffic will be like on the motorway as I go home, because the road works, and I should I go this way or should I go that way? But on the one hand, you're free to engage in the dream, and you're also free to return to listen to the talk. But it may be difficult for you if habit has built up. So all these little tricks and tips and suggestions and helpful techniques like meditation and what we read, what we look at, what we watch on the television, these all have their effect. And that will limit our free will. So it does take a little bit of practice. For example, somebody who hangs around with... I worked for a man once and he often had to go to building sites. And he didn't curse uh, himself. But any time he came back after a day or two in a building site, he was cursing like a trooper. He just picked it up. And after a couple of days, it would fade away as well. These are effects that can have their effects, but they don't have to limit. Regardless, if all of this is seen, both the smoking, the cursing, the doctor, the dentist, all of that is just part of the play. And whatever happens in the play just happens in the play. All we have to do really is realize the truth of the matter, which is that it's a play and that I am the light of the world. I mean, I think the side of contradicting there because you seem to have a realm of behaviors that uh, are deep negative. And if you're saying this is just a play, then uh, and perhaps there's a, another option between these extremes is about detaching from what is good and what's bad. Well, it, yeah, it would be detaching from good and bad, arising above it, not being bound by it. In truth, it doesn't matter whether you eat the whole packet of biscuits or have two rice cakes. It doesn't really matter. Uh, in the play, it can make a difference. One will give you indigestion, one will do something else. But in truth, it makes no difference. So in the play, we can work at a certain area. We can try to become doctors or dentists. We can be rice cake shop owners, we can, whatever we want to do. But all of that can be seen just as a play. And all the good and bad in the play can be seen as a play as well. And even our efforts to realize the self, that's part of the play as well. Yeah, that's very good. And it can appear to be like that when we're considering this alternative view as a possibility. But that, for the most part, that would be speculation. We're not sure what we would do. If we got up in the morning without having a personal agenda, who knows what we might do? We might sell the house, which is far too big for us anyway. Maybe we'd go to Romania and maybe we'd... I don't know what. Where I lived in Dublin, we lived in a row of houses, and as in every house, you're expected to sweep the snow from the front of your own house, you're to keep it clean. My father used to sweep our house, he used to sweep the little path, and he'd sweep in front of the house, and then he kept on going. He'd sweep all the neighbors' houses. And people used to say to him, you're mad, why you, that's his job, don't be doing it, yeah, you know, why do you have to do that? Let him do it. And some of them never did it, so he just did it, and never bothered. He didn't look for anything out of it, he, he just kept going. So we dropped this plan or idea we have for our own life. Who knows what the Lord or the Absolute might have planned for us. We just might be so busy doing our thing that we haven't seen what's really possible. Who knows? Sorry, in one way you're saying there that if you live in the present and know yourself, but then in another way you're saying like be spontaneous and change if you're not happy in, in what you're doing. Like they seem to contradict themselves. Just give me that again. You're saying that to live in the present. Yes. And, you know, with what you're doing, whether it be work, play, whatever, 
live in the present. Yes. But then if you're not, you're saying then to be spontaneous, to change, like if you're in the same job for 30 years, and, or like the beekeeper, yes. he changed his life because he wasn't happy. Yes. But is that not contradicting saying, like, if you are being yourself and living your life like that, you shouldn't need to change? Absolutely. There is no need to change. You don't have to change your job or your clothes mm. or mm. Um, your friends or anything. <coughs> yeah. Or your accent in order to realize the truth, if you like. Okay. Yeah. But th the idea is in any given moment that you're free. Now, what you're free from, say you're caught full in for speeding, doesn't mean if you suddenly connect in the present that you're free from the parking ticket. You're going, or the speeding ticket. Mm. You're going to get the speeding ticket. Mm. But what you're free from is you're free from attachment and identification and it's just a speeding ticket and also in, in any moment you're free to act whatever way you like mm -hmm. so you can either act freely and, and naturally and spontaneously or you can act out of habit or you can act out of selfishness now if we practice being selfish and acting out of habit very quickly that's pretty much all we'll be able to do we'll be so useful, we'll be so good at it but it is possible in any moment to be free to, to respond to the need, if you like. So, for example, when you go home this evening, when you open the door, something will be presented to you. And whatever it is, you're free to respond. Some people say they have a policy for people who knock on the door, that they always give money, or they, or they never give money. And there's no freedom in that at all. It kind of lets them off the hook of making a decision, but there's no freedom in it. Because some days it may be appropriate to give the person money, and some days it may not. Does that make yes. any sense? Yeah, yeah. sort of. <laughs> so. Well, um, yeah, no, it's just to get that idea of the feeling in the present, like living in the present. Yes. To achieve that, as you say, it's just a practice of. Of being in the present. Of being in the present. Yeah. Yes. Well, it's actually the natural state is to be in the present. It's just that we practice being absent so much. So we're driving and we're trying to figure out which parking space we're going to take or which way we're going to go at a certain junction. Or if we're late, we drive, you know, over the speed limit and we practice what we're going to say when we get stopped. You know, come up with a good excuse to not get a ticket. And, yeah. and we're at this all the time. So it's no wonder we don't see the car coming out from the side or the lampposts. We're just not there for it. We're somewhere else. Okay. So it, it, the practice, if you like, is in not being distracted. Yeah. And when it's important, we can do it. Okay. Say you're shopping or something, or you're somewhere and you're, you have a child with you, and the child asks, can I go over and do something, uh, which is a little distance away from you. And while there may be thousands of people in the shopping mall, you can always just stay focused totally on your child and just make sure always follow them and not be distracted by what passes by and that's staying in the present and you don't get distracted it doesn't matter who walks in front of you you always just watch what you need to what you need to watch but what happens generally we're at a talk or we're doing anything we're driving it's a very good one and it's five to six and you want to get the six o'clock news so you put it on to 2fm or rte1 and the next minute is a quarter past six and you don't know what you never got the news you know what that's like? We just went off in a little dream and we totally missed it. Okay. 
So the practice, if you like, is, is not to be distracted, it's just to stay in the present. Okay, thank you. Now it is definitely provocative and challenging material, so it won't necessarily answer all the questions. In, in fact, what it probably will do is raise a lot more questions than it will answer, but that's the idea, really. If it's play, the purpose of a play normally is to entertain when we go to see something. Yes. So if this is a play as such created by the creator and we play our parts in it, what is the purpose of this creation? Yeah, very good. The different traditions will have a different way to explain how the creation came into it. Everybody wants to know how did it start and what, you know, what started the whole thing off and what's it for and they have a different way to explain it. Some traditions say that the idea of the creation is to manifest the glory of God. And that the whole play is set up in order to allow us to return to the creator. So we start off in the world and very much attached and identified and bound, but we're told time and time again that there is a freedom and that there is a unity and that we can transcend identification or attachment to the creation. And we keep getting stuck into it again and just waiting for our next paycheck and a bit of shopping and our holiday and so on. We keep forgetting. It's said that before a, a human being is born that it makes three promises to remember the creator, to live by the fine laws of the creation and to return to the creator. Good question. And this is where it gets even trickier. If you take it that there's just one life and you die at 20 or 40 or 80, whatever, and, and that's it. Well, one way to explain how that can work out is that you're at the mercy of your friends to keep saying enough prayers to get you out of purgatory. And if you're happy with that, then that's fine. People who aren't happy with that would say something along the lines of what Shakespeare said, that you go on stage and you play your part, and then you go backstage and you change your clothes. So if there is another act and you're in it, change your clothes and you come back on in a different costume. So you, you get as many as you need. But even that being a proposition, the gold thing would remain true. That it's the substance in any given moment. We are already pure, perfect and complete and limitless. We've just forgotten. So we're, we're given all the opportunities to remember. But it's never not true that we're anything other than the light of the world. Is that all right? To know yourself. Yes. Right. This is probably a wide question. How do you know when it's yourself? <laughs> Very good. Know thyself, that was the inscription over the oracle at Delphi, which was said to be the, the summation of all wisdom. Know thyself. Well, you can start off with what you're not, and that's the best way to do it. What we're told is that process of inquiry, if it's honest, will go all the way. So, for example, if I drove down on the, on the motorway and the car broke down, I could say, I broke down on the motorway. Did you ever hear anybody say that? I broke down on the motorway. You didn't break down on the motorway. What happened? The car broke down. And are you the car? You're not. Or the clothes, you know, if somebody splashes ribene or something on your white shirt, you don't say, I'm ruined. The shirt may be ruined, but you're not. You haven't been touched at all by the ribene, have you? And if you keep going with that, for example, with the body, Say you lose a finger, are you any less than you were before? The body may, may have nine fingers instead of ten, but is it really any less? 
So you lose a finger, maybe lose a leg, have a heart transplant. You, you can do anything with the body, but is that you? Are you your body? Is that a fair question? What, what would the answer be? Am I my body? I'm not, I have a body, just like I have a car. Is that fair? Well, you can do the same with the mind. Am I my mind, or do I have a mind? And am I the heart, or do I have a heart? And then you can say, what is it that has all these things? We conventionally speak the other way. We say, when I die, so and so, my such and such will go on. So we're, we're really limiting what I am to this thing here, which is the wrong way to do it. What we should say is, when the body dies, I will. There's these Kerry jokes about the man who said the same hatchet was in his family for something like 350 years, and it only had 14 new handles and seven new heads. <laughs> so it, it could be the same with the body. It's just the body. It's not what's real. And the wise encourage us to inquire. And it's, it's actually that process of inquiry where you realize it yourself. If you read it in a book or somebody gives you something, or you see, it just doesn't do it. It's the process of inquiry where you realize it yourself. A bit like an accountant. If an accountant has to balance the books, if he does it himself and he tops it up and he knows it's right, then he knows it's absolutely right. But if he doesn't do that, and somebody tells him, you just don't know in the same way. Does that make sense? But when you do know something yourself for sure, you know it once and for all. And if it's not right, you won't be able to convince yourself that it's right. You can tip X out the 3px or something at the end and make it two zeros, but you'll know it's not right. So luckily, we can't fool ourselves. So it's this faculty, if you like, of reason that is of immense help when we start to inquire because it won't let us be fooled. So in the sober, cold light of day, we won't be fooled by the special K or the Red Bull or any of those things. And it can go all the way, but it does take a little bit of work. And it's easy to be distracted. But you'd accept that we can be easily brainwashed as well. Or would you accept? Yes, the mind, if you like, can be conditioned and can develop a lot of bad habits. Some people say that that's what happened in the parable of, you know, the man who, who asked for his inheritance and he left, the prodigal son, and he spent his inheritance. So he goes out into the world, spends it all, has a good time, and he ends up with everything gone and his friends gone and he's eating with the sheep or with the, with the pigs. And something stirs in his memory. He remembers his father. And then he starts to make his way home. There's no other way out except home. That's the only way to go. It's just a matter of time. And what the wise tell us is that you've got all the time in the world, but no time to lose. Now we put it off. Who was it who said, make me, what's the famous one, make me pure and chaste, but just not yet? It's lovely, isn't it? It's lovely. Is that all right? Maybe one more if... Um, you were talking about the laws earlier. Yes. Do those laws dictate children being born into poverty, yes. ill health? Do those laws dictate that? They do. There are laws in the creation that we don't know them all. And in fact, we may deny some of them. For example, we can deny the, the earth is round. It doesn't change at all whether it is or not what we believe. Either it's round or it's flat, and it appears to be round. 
So, th so there are laws in the creation. We don't know them all. Now some of them we can, we can use and we can explain and we know if you plant a daffodil bulb, you'll get a daffodil. But we don't really think it's the same. If we feed on, for example, criticism all day or negativity, we don't think there's any consequence to that. Now, we'd never think for one minute if we eat a half a black forest gato or something and nobody's watching that it won't pile on a couple of pounds. We don't think that we couldn't be fooled like that, but we just think in the subtle realm of, of the mind and the heart that we can do whatever we want and get away with it. But it may not be true. Would you be happy to leave it there? I'm sure there'll be lots of questions, and, but, but that is the idea. So I'd like to thank you all very much. Safe home.